I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. shows up in your Twitter feed or the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, and the author of the novel Love Marriage. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant, and with us today we have Danielle Clayton, author of The Bells and Tiny Pretty Things, and the COO of the nonprofit We Need Diverse Books. Welcome, Danielle. Hi, thanks so much for having me. We're so glad to have you. We want to talk to you about your writing and your work with Cake Literary and We Need Diverse Books. But we also wanted to have you on the show because you were quoted in a New York Times article about sensitivity readers recently. And I think probably all of our listeners saw this in their Facebook feeds, their Twitter feeds. Maybe they talked about it. And you had some serious criticisms of the way that article was framed, which we're going to get to. But for listeners who might not have read that piece, could you tell us what you do as a sensitivity reader? Sure. Um, first of all, I hate the term sensitivity reader. I was going to ask. Prefer, <laughs> I prefer the term targeted beta reader yeah. because it's more accurate because what I do is I go through and I read for specific thing, um, specific representation. So that's first off. I hate that term because I'm not being sensitive. What I'm doing is I'm using my critical thinking skills and I'm using my ability to analyze to look at different structures in books and different items that reflect and telegraph and communicate culture. And if you're asking me to read, obviously it's because you have written someone who comes from my similar background and that's what I'm looking for. So first of all, I hate that term, not Mm -hmm. being sensitive. I really am being, I'm just an editor and it's another level of editing. Who created that term? Where Where does it come from? I actually don't know. So what I do know is that this has been happening for a long time. People have been doing cultural expert reads or just different types of um, reads like that. So if I wrote about um, a lawyer, I'm not a lawyer. I would seek out a lawyer to read my manuscript to check for the things that I don't know or if I'm a doctor. So from what I've gathered from a lot of scholars like Debbie Reese and Ebony Elizabeth Thomas, who are great people that you should have on your radar. They've been doing this way longer than me. They've been doing these cultural expert reads since the 60s and 70s. And then somehow it's that term started coming into the ethos. And then my good friend, Justina Ireland, started a database called Writing in the Margins where people could find sensitivity readers. It was a one-stop shop. So there were no excuses for bad representation. So it's too late to go back on this term. We're, we're stuck with it. We can't rename this whole process in some way. I, w- I hope we can because I hate it because that's part of what I think is creating a firestorm yeah. and kicking off the ire that people feel. Yeah. It's like sensitive. 
oh, that's PC, political correctness, sensitive. And then they get in their feelings about that term and they don't even listen to what I'm actually doing. Yeah, well, I mean, that's yeah. kind of like the, the headline of the article, you know, which. Yeah, said, I was I was troubled by that headline, which is, you know, in an era of out, of online outrage, do sensitivity readers result in better books or censorship, which sort of feels to me like it's just really, I don't know, almost chumming the waters for the all right. Um, oh, definitely. It's a buzzword for like we're mad, like we're going to be mad about something. And it's an article by Alexandra Alter from December 24th, 2017. And she I really just... gave me a Christmas gift for that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, I... You say in that article, it's a craft issue, right? Not about censorship, mm-hmm. which makes sense to me. Yes, because I'm literally looking at it with a hat on as a writer, as an editor, as a reader. I'm not censoring. I'm just saying perhaps. And plus, also, I'm not going around and picking up people's books and doing this for free. People are coming to me and asking me for my opinion. So it's not like I'm going around being a police officer and ruffling up people's books, right? Saying, Mm -hmm. oh, look at this book. Here's my sensitivity read on it. And here's my blog. I'm not doing that. What I'm doing is I've been asked by an editor or publishing company or by an individual to read their book for money because I have an expertise, and then I give my feedback. Could you give us an example of a read that you did that was sort of talk a little bit about the craft and and talk maybe a little bit about how the authors you work with usually respond to your help? Sure. Um, the authors that seek me out and when it's like author to author are always so wonderful, right? They've come to me. We're usually friends or know each other from the author world. And I read their books and they're like, oh, my goodness, I didn't think of that. And then when it's from a, from an editor at a publishing house, I usually don't get to connect with the the editor. I mean, the author on the other side. So mm-hmm. essentially, because um, most of these I sign confidentiality agreements. Um, let me think of one. I read a picture book about um, actually about Jimmy Carter and he had a black best friend growing up. And that was some of the impetus for some of the decision making that he made in office, supposedly. And so and this was one where they wanted me to read for the black representation in the book, even though it was about a white man. And they kept talking about uh, segregation, this and segregation, that. And I And I said in there in one of my notes, I said, you're laying out segregation as if it's something that was chosen by both white Americans and black Americans. And you're not addressing the power dynamic. You keep bringing it up as something that keeps these two groups of people away from each other. But you're not being clear. You're not telling the truth on the page. This was set up by white people in the South. So you have to reconcile with what that means to a friendship of two boys. And you're showing this on the page. You have to be honest. If you're going to write diversely, you need to sort of tell the truth. And by that, I mean, not your glamorized version of the past, if you're doing historical fiction, for example. So you mentioned in passing briefly there, and I just want to follow up, like you mentioned that you signed non-disclosure agreements. And I mm-hmm. wonder for like, say, what percentage of what you do, is that a factor? And, and does that better the conversation in some way or enable communication that might not be happening otherwise? I think um, because at first they didn't start uh, having those non-disclosure agreements. It came because there were some sensitivity readers that would go online and blast the book before it comes out, which is unfair. As a read, as a writer myself and an author, if I have someone's sensitivity read my book, which I have, and they went and said that I did all of these things incorrectly before I had a chance to revise, I would be devastated by that. And you mentioned that you've used sensitivity, or I'm going to say targeted beta readers. Now I'm going to correct my, ter- let's see if we can start using that term in this episode, um, You that you use targeted beta readers yourself. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I rely on them. So for my first series with my writing partner, Sona, we for it's called Tiny Pretty Things. It's about three girls in a ballet boarding school that are willing to do whatever it takes to be the best. We wrote from the point of view of a white American girl, a black American girl, and a Korean American girl. My business partner and I, neither of us are, are Korean. So um, she's Punjabi. So we decided to get, I, we had 12 readers total because we had six from the ballet world we had two people reading for eating disorders which show up in the book and then we had five three or uh, i think was four korean readers actually that read the book for our korean representation um, because we felt it was super super important 
Um, and before I get hate mail about why I didn't get uh, white people to read my book for my my white girl that I wrote, I will have to say that I feel like as a minority in this country that I'm very well acquainted with how white America functions. So I know it really, really well. And if you read the book and you tell me I'm wrong, I'll take that bullet. But I'm pretty sure I know um, how white women behave well, and how that, white girls behave. That story to me, I mean, that see, I sort of have this theory that like the future is going to be Actually, John Freeman used this term one time. Who's, he's been on the podcast before. It was at an event we were doing, and he said he used the term a polyphonic novel or a multivocal novel. I mean, Kansas City is a multivocal city, right? So you have many different groups that are living together, and, and New York is even more that way, right? And so mm-hmm. any, any one person from any one group trying to write about a city – is gonna run is gonna have to cross lines to write about it accurately. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And I definitely agree with you. That seems to me like the exciting future of the American novel rather than something to be avoided or worried about. But we do have to grapple with this idea of power and nobody wants to talk about that. And that's the piece that I think really touches people's nerves, or at least when I talk about it, people get really mad about me and send me mean notes. Um, there is a power difference. It's not about people like, oh, you want a police who can write who? No, everyone should write what they want to write. I want to write what I want to write. Writers should feel free to do that. It's about the system of publishing. That's what I'm talking about and calling out and being honest about. It's not about us as authors and us write in the way that we write. It's about how our manuscripts move through this machine. They move differently. And nobody wants to talk about that part. That, yes, I can write cross-culturally and I can write and do these things. But when my manuscript and my book enters the marketplace, that's when we have to grapple with this sort of institutional um, discrimination and and how there are certain people that get their manuscripts through easier, even when they're writing outside of themselves right. than when I write from my own point of view. So nobody wants to really talk about that. And that's the issue that I had with a New York Times piece on this, on all of the pieces almost, except for one by Everdeen Mason at the Washington Post. She did an article on sensitivity reads that was so much better balanced. So one of the things that we're doing in this podcast or we want to do is talk about the literary industry itself and editors and agents. In fact, we're going to have an agent on in the second half um, um, to talk about that. I was unaware of the practice of sensitivity reads. What I, but it's just the same as what I do with friends, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, or when I was embedded in Iraq and I and I wanted to write about the military, I spent a lot of time getting to know soldiers, and then I would ask them to read the book. You know, and and I would ask them specific parts. Well, how does this machine work? Did I get it right? Would you use this, you know, tool here or you know that sort of stuff? I mean, it, it just seems like the natural process of writing a book to me. Then why are people so mad? I don't, <laughs> They're mad. I, well, I'm confused about that. I don't get that part. Yeah. Do you? I send, mean, I, I, I also. If, I want to know if Sugi sends her books to other people to read, or if you get people requesting you to read. I do get people who have asked me to read, and I think um, I write mostly about Sri Lanka and Sri Lankan diaspora politics. And sometimes I get people asking me to read. Sometimes I get journalists who asks me who ask me for help. In my current project, I'm writing slightly less about the diaspora and kind of more about things that happened in Sri Lanka. So I'm essentially writing historical fiction. So I do turn to friends who were there during those time periods. You know, when did this happen? Um, and do I have the feeling of this correct? Right. And yeah. um, those people's opinions, I mean, frankly, those are those are often the people I'm writing for. Right. Like I'm a member of a diaspora and I'm writing about my parents native country. And but that's that's an identity difference that within the conversation that I'm participating in is, is deeply important to people. Um, people are very conscious of my position as someone based outside. Um, and it's also important to me to kind of kind of have my ducks in a row. I wonder how those things play out for kind of different ages of readers and how that conversation changes when it's about writing for children versus writing for adults and what institutional things might be in place at one level and not another. I'm just not, I'm just not sure about that. Cause I feel like both of the, a lot of the articles that I've read about this have really been focusing on um, books for kids. And it seems to me much as Whitney said that like, it seemed like a, 
a codification of a practice that I had already been on some level engaging in. Right. And it is interesting that children's books are sort of the landscape and the battle, the battleground for a sensitivity reads or targeted beta reads. And I think that's because children's books are forms of indoctrination. How do you learn about the world when you are small? You consume media, TV, movies, music, books. And so when you learn about other people, sometimes the first time you meet them is in a book. Um, at least that was for me and for a lot of kids. And so I think that where we absorb some of where bigotry is absorbed, I think is on the page and, and in media and kids are sponges. So I think that being conscious of that, not to say that the adult world doesn't have some of the same problems. It definitely does. I don't have expertise in the adult publishing world. Um, I know that I hear from my friends, especially in the science fiction and fantasy world and the genre world, that it has those same issues. It's just that because it's targeted adults, people feel like, oh, we don't need to be talking about that. But for kids, so many people have been boxed out of the children's publishing world because it's been a good old uh, middle class, able bodied, cisgendered, heteronormative girls club for so long that they feel like when and I feel this way, too, when all the mirrors and all of the windows are written by one set of people, they are literally dictating to children what it means to be normal, what it means to be a hero, what it means to be beautiful, what it means to be smart, what it means to be desired. And these things create cultural consciousness and they create what we have now and the problem that we have now. I'm a former librarian, so well, that's you're, where You're speaking to the converted here on the, uh, <laughs> on the Fiction Nonfiction podcast at LitHub. But, you know, one of the things that we do with the podcast is, is, is uh, we claim at the top that every issue has been covered somewhere in literature, and we try to at least make us, you know, prove that, uh, prove our claim. And we were thinking about this essay uh, by Ralph Ellison, which is a really uh, wonderful essay called "20th Century Fiction and the Black Black Mask of Humanity," and it was written. It's in a 1953 essay collection called "Shadow and Act." And writing about white writers in that book, Ellison says. Too often, what is presented as the American Negro, a, a most complex example of Western man, emerges as an oversimplified clown, a beast, or an angel. Seldom is he drawn with a sensitivity-focused process of oppos- opposites, of good and evil, of instinct and intellect, of passion and spirituality, which is great literary art, which great literary art has projected as the image of man. It's so interesting that the term sensitivity is right there early in the essay. I'm curious what it feels like for both of you to read this piece, you know, 65 years in the future. Are the issues he's addressing the same as the ones you run into in your readings, Danielle, or are they different? Well, I think that as a child growing up, what and where what he talks about there as an oversimplification of what it means to be black, those things did show up on the page for me as a child. When I look back on the things that I read growing up, we were the the funny the funny friend the sassy sidekick, yeah. the evil. Like when I look at books I love like Narnia and when I look at um, even Tolkien's Middle Earth, the you know the men that are from the other continent, even the, the orcs, they code as being brown or black. And or they're angels there to save white people or to make them feel human. We can see that in To Kill a Mockingbird, right? You've got Calpurnia. Oh, God, I'm going to get so much hate mail. Anytime I mention that book, you've got Calpurnia and you've got um, her as an angel. I feel like To Kill a Mockingbird totally works that way. So send your hate mail my way as well. I will, because it's a lot. (laughs) Everyone loves that book. And so you've got these three ways. We're funny or we're evil or we're there to humanize uh, white people and to show them that they're, you know, that that black people have humanity or that they can be their best selves. It's like when I read The Help and when I see that movie, I'm like, oh, here we go. It's the same thing. So I think it's just he's talking about the fact that those three boxes are what black people and black characters are put into. And it's a pervasive issue in fiction that has been happening since we sort of entered yeah, that was the line that the, the section that really struck me. There's this there's this bit about sort of, you know, this these characters are there to console the white man in his guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, yeah, that's I mean, I think um, when I think especially of children's books, I think something that's really sad for me now is that, you know, the children I know, the children like the children with whom I talk about books um, 
I think it's a lot of fun for me to talk to children about books. And it's really upsetting for me, especially when I think back to books that I loved as a kid. And I realize I actually wouldn't recommend some of these books to the children who read um, kind of in my in my vicinity because they have racist stereotypes in them. Like, you know, The Horse and His Boy, for example, which I remember as a child loving that book, which is about these two brave kids and their friendship. And it has all this sort of coded stuff in it about swarthy evil men. Yep. Um, and it's in the it's in the Narnia series. And I didn't even remember it. And then I went back and read it as an adult and was just horrified. Exactly. It's really sad because then you realize that all of these codes really seep into sort of your self-esteem as you grow up and what you find beautiful, what is light and what is dark, what is good and what is evil. These things are coded. We absorb that programming from the things that we consume as children. It's like when everyone was so up in arms when they published that that um, study in the 60s showing black children choosing white dolls over black dolls. Yeah. And be, of course they did because the coding that they got from books and in film and TV and music and movie, everything showed that goodness was white and angelic and blackness was evil. One of the things I love about the Ellison essay is that, you know, I totally agree with the point that Dan- Danielle is making. But then he goes and explains the economic cost, right, of this, that there's a consequence. Uh, he's pretty high on uh, 19th century writers like Twain and Melville, and at least their willingness to confront the issue of the inequality of treatment of white and black Americans, and, and identifies that as the central problem of the republic, right? But he goes on to say that, you know, uh, one of the problems with somebody like Hemingway, who he's very critical of in the essay, you know, is that... Hemingway and, and, and Steinbeck really don't talk and can't talk and don't know how to, to write about black characters. And he says there's a consequence to this is that he's, he talks about how industrialism, you know, and basically he's talking about capitalism, was reacted to in Europe by writers who wrote anti-capitalist and tried to critique capitalism, right? But the problem with somebody like Hemingway is that he couldn't critique the economic system of America without running into black Americans, and he didn't want to write about them, so 20th century writers avoided that capitalist critique because they couldn't deal with race. And to me, that seems like such a tragedy and such an important point to make. Like, I had never thought about that connection until I read this essay. Yeah, and it's sort of sad. It's like, wow, you think that I'm so different from you that you can't even include me in your work? <laughs> yeah. That you you don't have the, the imaginative uh, capability to even see me? Because you don't have, you've never loved a black person. You've never let a black person in your house. You've never, you know what I mean? Like you have not, Jacqueline, uh, Jackie Woodson says, you have not sat at my grandmother's table. She has this beautiful horn book essay where she talks about, if you're going to write cross-culturally, I need to feel like you're sitting at my grandmother's table. And that's because those men chose not to live full and rich lives that were full of lots of different people or full of black people who are wonderful. So I just feel like it is, it's, uh, it's sad and it's depressing, but it also reflects the, the nature of what race and race relations were of their time. He nails them on craft as well, because there's also this, just this sort of moment where he talks about um, in order to like deal with your, your shallow individuality, you kind of circle the drain of honing your, the technical benefits of your prose so that you can avoid looking at society overall. And I was sort of like, oh, God, I mean, I think there's a lot of that probably still going on. There's this great prizing of American individuality and then um, a lack of looking at what America as a collective, as a society is. There is also a tension in the essay. Ellison says that white writers should avoid stereotypes and include the experience of black and other minorities in their work. Then he also says that black writers and and writers from other minority groups, quote, have their own task of contributing to the total image of the American by depicting the experience of their own groups. And Danielle, you've worked with white writers who are writing about black characters and you're often complimentary of their work. But in the Vulture interview that you just did, um, you also note that one problem with white writers writing about race is that they're, quote, showing up and taking a seat. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, So I've talked about how I run a writing cross-cultural retreat. Uh, We Need Diverse Books has one with a great company called Madcap Retreats. And I believe that everyone should write cross-culturally and try it and stretch yourself. It's a craft issue. It's not about, for me... Um, that right writers can't do it. I named several that could. Tessa Gratton, mm-hmm. Kate Elliott, Marie Rakowski. There are more that have done it so well, phenomenally. 
It's about what happens when those manuscripts come into the publishing machine. If we had equitable publishing, then when my friend writes a book that has a black character that is wonderful and phenomenal and has no stereotypes and, and gets added to a publishing list, and then I come and I write a book about a black girl and doesn't have any issues and is on that, those two can be put at the same house without one of us having to bow out. Unfortunately, it's been shown because the CCBC releases stats every year that that uh, white people write about uh, minority groups more than minority groups get the opportunity to write about themselves and they are published at a higher record. So until those stats change, I'm going to say both things. I'm going to say Great. Do your work. You can write about anything. There's a book that just came out, A Conspiracy of Stars by Olivia Cole. That is wonderful. It's about a black girl in space. I was like, yes, I blurbed it. It's fantastic. <laughs> that's awesome. That's great. It's amazing. It's an amazing book. She does a great job. And so that's wonderful. I'm so glad that book's published. But also, I want to make sure that publishing shifts and changes so that when some of my other black friends who are not published when their manuscripts come across the acquisition desk that they get a shot to. Danielle, you mentioned in passing there really quickly, um, I think the CCBC. And just for those of our listeners who don't know what that is, can you unpack that acronym for us? Oh, yes. Um, It's the Cooperative Center. Okay. Oh, goodness. I have to write it out. (laughs) A book for children. And it's in Wisconsin. And they receive books from all publishers and they keep a tally. And they've been doing it for years. They literally record the books about and by um, people of color and about children of color and to show who's writing about who. And who's getting published? And they release the stats every year. And so you can Google them and see the stats show that, you know, uh, that we are headed in the right direction. But it's such a small incremental change. And there are two graphics that are wonderful that were put out by Sarah Park Dolan, who is another children's book scholar who's wonderful. And it shows you graphically. It shows all of the different children in, in, in America, their different groups, and how many books they stand on. So the books, the lowest is our, my, our Native Americans, our indigenous population. And then you see each little group is standing on the number of books that correspond to the percentage of books that, were, that came out this year about them. And then the little white girl, her books do a bell curve over the top of all of the other children. And you see sort of the... Um, the discrepancy visually. The stats don't lie if we're keeping a tally, and they are keeping a tally. I'm hoping that we can start keeping a tally for books about the LGBTQIA plus community and uh, the disability community. I'm hoping that we can start tracking that as well. Sarah, Sarah Park Dolan is, uh, I'm, I live in Minnesota. I'm from Maryland, Yay. but I live in Minnesota. And Sarah Park Dolan is a, is a Minnesotan. So shout out to that. Yes. She's um, amazing. Yeah, she is amazing. Uh, Danielle, uh, being a sensitivity reader is only really a small part of your career. Uh, you know, as we noted at the top, you're an author. We're going to get you to read in a minute. Uh, and, and one of the chief executives of We Need Diverse Books, which supports writers from marginalized groups. You're also the co-founder of Cake Literary. And we're going to talk to uh, the agent Aisha Pandey about lack of diversity in publishing industry itself, meaning among agents and editors. Could you talk about how these organizations you've started are addressing that? Sure. Well, I didn't start Weenie Diverse Books, but I jumped in there as soon as Eleanor uh, made the call. She was so um, upset about um, one of these posters for children's luminaries that were presented at Books Expo America, and there were just no people of color, but there was a grumpy cat, and she just couldn't understand that. So oh she, like, that was the only diversity there. So she started a viral hashtag. So, called Weena Diverse Books and had people across the world share why it's important that every kid deserves to see themselves as the hero in a story. And it went viral for four days. And then we got to work and we developed six programs to sort of address it from all different 
angles. And then also I started a company called Cake Literary with my BFF, Sona Cherapatra, where we believe that making a book is like making a cake. And if you had to eat cake that came in one flavor for the for your whole life, it would be very boring. And so we met in <laughs> we met in grad school. She's super chatty. I was very chatty. And she said that as an Indian American, um, as a Punjabi American, she didn't see herself in books growing up. She didn't see herself until she was in her 20s. And we, and I was fortunate enough to see myself because I had giants like Walter Dean Myers and Mildred Taylor and uh, Virginia Hamilton. And I loved those books and I loved them, but I also wanted to see myself in Sweet Valley High and in A Wrinkle in Time and The Phantom Toll Booth and things like that. And I didn't, after you've read the canon or all of the books by three black authors and then there's no more, I was reading two to three books a week. So I was starving to see myself. We decided that we wanted to package books for kids that were fun and that had a fun stamp on them, that had diversity, but it was presented in a way that was layered, nuanced, and part of the world, but not the plot. Uh, and to show publishers how to do that, because we felt like they were failing at that. They were putting books about people of color into categories that were sad and issue books and educational, which are great. We need those. But we also need just the book where the girl gets kissed, where the boy goes to outer space, where the girl saves the world and slays the dragon. And we wanted to do that. And we started in 2011, but we didn't say anything until we got all our ducks in a row and we came out with tiny pretty things. And then we've just... And we're on, I think, our seventh book now. I want kids to fall in love with reading. And one of the ways they do that, and I know this from being a librarian and a teacher, is by seeing themselves. I'm afraid I'm going to have to invoke a TV show here since I can think of so few um, so few books uh, that have Sri Lankan characters in them. I got super excited about Steven Universe because there's a Sri Lankan yeah. Tamil character in Steven Universe. And I was just... I would just walk around my apartment just saying her name. And I mean, this is like this fall. So I mean, I feel like there's no end to that that being helpful for people. You have a novel coming out and just, I think it's February 6th, right? So just in just a couple of weeks, The Bells is coming out. And uh, I'm so excited about the, the The premise of that book is so cool. It's about a group of young women, The Bells, who have powers to make others beautiful in a society where everyone is born gray, which just seems to me like such a, such a great idea. And we were hoping you would give us a short reading from that just as we close out. Yeah, it's a world where um, everyone's born sort of looking degenerative, but there are women that can change you down to your bones for for a price. And I wrote it because I was so uncomfortable in my own body when I was an adolescent. I mean, if you look at the magazines that were coming out in the 90s and the late 80s, they didn't have many brown people in them or brown bodies. So I was very uncomfortable growing up out here in uh, Maryland the fly in the milk. Um, So I was very, uh, I write about things that bother me. And so this book is sort of built around that discomfort that I had about my own body, about bodies in general. And I think that every person sort of can relate to, to feeling like you don't fit. So I'm just going to read from the very beginning. We all turned 16 today. And for any normal girl, that would mean raspberry and lemon macarons and tiny pastel blimps and pink champagne and card games, maybe even a teacup elephant, but not for us. Today is our debut. There are only six of us this year. My fingertips leave fog teardrops on the paper-thin glass walls. The carriage is beautiful and clear and fashioned into a ball. I am a delicate doll poised inside a snow globe. An adoring audience surrounds my carriage, eager to see what I look like and what I can do. A net made of my signature pink flowers stretches along the glass curves in order to tell everyone my name, Camellia, and to hide me until I'm revealed to the royal court. I am am the last in line. My heart races with excited nervousness as we snake through the crowds in the royal square for the beauty carnival. The festival happens once every three years. I peer through the tiny spaces between the petals with a pair of eye scopes and try to soak in my first glances of the world wanting to fold up each bit and tuck it into the cerise layers of my dress. It's a wonderland of palace buildings with golden turrets 
and glittering arches, fountains full of crimson and ivory fish, topiary mazes of clipped trees, shrubs, and bushes in every possible geometric shape. Imperial canals circle the square, holding jeweled boats bright as gemstones and shaped like smiling moons on midnight blue water. They spill over with passengers eager to watch us. The royal hourglass that measures the length of day and night churns with sand the color of white diamonds. The sky and its clouds are made of melting cherries and flaming oranges and burnt grapefruit as the sun sinks into the sea. The dying sunlight flashes my own reflection on the glass. My powdered skin makes me look like an overly frosted piece of caramel cake. I've never seen anything like it before. This is the first time I've visited the Imperial Island, the first time I've ever left home. Uh, Danielle, <laughs> thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks so much yeah, for having really- me. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Looking forward to reading the book. And now we're thrilled to welcome our next guest, longtime literary agent Aisha Pandey. Hi, Sugi and Whitney. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, Aisha, it's great to have you here. We know you represent many writers of color and that you're interested in literary fiction as well as young adult work. I wonder if you can start us off by talking a bit about your history as an editor and agent. Sure. I started my career in publishing in 1990. My first jobs were at a small fine arts publisher and at Reader's Digest. And then in 1997, I was offered an editor position at Crown, a division of Random House. Turns out I was replacing one of the very few African-American editors at Random House at the time. And so I inherited some of her very interesting titles. Also, as an immigrant and person of color myself... I continued both at Crown and in my subsequent positions to acquire works by writers of color, both in fiction and nonfiction. At Crown, some of my titles included The Vibe History of Hip Hop by the editors of Vibe and Napoli Ever After by Trisha Thomas, both of which did very well. I actually think that the film rights for Napoli were acquired by Halle Berry recently, and it's now being made into a TV series, which I'm wow. really excited about. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, it's, and it's, you know, it's 25 years later, so it's, it's thrilling that it's still relevant now. Um, from there, I moved to HarperCollins, where I acquired mostly prescriptive and illustrated books, including a book about Asian beauty. Um, my last job as an editor was at Farrah, Strauss and Giroux, where my mandate was specifically to acquire literary fiction and narrative nonfiction by writers of color. I'm very proud of the books I acquired there, including Chris Abani's Penn Hemingway award-winning Graceland. Oh, yeah. He was just on uh, our, uh, the other literary uh, hub podcast, uh, Phone Call from Paul. Oh, yeah. He's just uh, so deeply thoughtful and talented. You know, I was really, really delighted to be working with him. And I'm very, very excited by how well Graceland continues to do. I started agenting um, about 10 years ago. And after working solo solo for a number of years, now there's six of us at Aisha Pandey Literary, my boutique agency. I represent fiction, nonfiction, and YA. Some of my clients include Ibram Kendi, who won the National Book Award for Nonfiction in 2016, Lisa Koh, who was a finalist for the National Book Award in Fiction last year and also won the Penn Bellwether Prize. Danielle Evans, who won um, a Penn Bingham Prize. And by the way, thank you for discussing her story, Virgins, on one of your podcasts. <laughs> it's still one of my favorite stories of all time. Such a good story. Can you believe that she wrote it when she was 22? <laughs> having, having met her when she was 21, I, I can. She's a wonder and has been from... We consider her... She's amazing. She's a, she's a friend of the podcast. <laughs> and a genius. Yeah. Um... New York Times bestselling author Shilpi Gauda, Patricia Engel, who just won the Dayton Literary Peace Prize in November, among many other awards, um, Black Lives Matter founder Opal Tometi, YA author Sheba Karim, and many, many others. We've just been speaking with Danielle Clayton about her work as a sensitivity reader, or as she would prefer to say, a targeted beta reader, her own writing and her work with We Need Diverse Books. And that conversation was just underlining for me huge questions I have about publishing's diversity and I think have had for a long time. And I was sitting around with a writer friend of mine 
and we were thinking about editors we could name who were people of color. And we're both pretty obsessed with this topic and we could hardly come up with any um, sort of a couple of names that you would expect. And then I thought, well, maybe this is me. Maybe I, I just I don't have a broad sense of the publishing industry. I just know the parts that I've worked with. And so I, I went digging and I found a couple I was really excited about. Uh, I said, and I also sent Sugi uh, this article about Tanahasi Coates editor uh, Chris Jackson. Um, yeah. Vincent Cunningham wrote this profile of him in, in the New York Times Magazine in February 2016. And I thought it was a pretty good, interesting portrait of how he'd affected the industry by working with a, a number of black writers. And uh, for our listeners, we will post this article to our Facebook page when we post the episode too. But we want to just read two short passages from that article. Um, one is a quote from Chris Jackson. Quote, I want to protect the writer of any race from the dishonesty of racism and how it can inflect any kind of work, he said. And for writers who are trying to challenge the pandering of the white gaze, if you have to go through a series of gatekeepers who are uniformly white, you're going to end up with something that's, here came a considered pause. It's going to be tough to preserve the integrity in the end. The other is Tanahasi Coates talking about his relationship with Chris Jackson. Uh, he said, it, it reads, in the intervening years, Jackson's eye had become indispensable to Coates, largely because of the depth of their shared experiences. Quote, you can't say to Chris, you don't really know about the struggle, Coates said. Chris knows, and if Chris doesn't get it, then you need to go back to square one. That's rare for black authors. Very, very rare. I'm a great admirer of Chris Jackson and Tanahasi Coates, of course. We actually worked together briefly at Crown, and I have watched his rise through the publishing industry with awe. Apart from being a brilliant editor and advocate, he's also a genius for the way he has navigated and succeeded in a white industry while continuing to fiercely guard his authors and shepherd them. And, and somehow he manages to extract the very best work from them and helps them to stay true to their visions and their voices, which is just so rare. Um, it's really hard to build a big career as an outsider, um, somebody without an academic or a family pedigree in an industry that's just still so reliant on patronage and connections and mentorship. I was just going to ask uh, how the industry's lack of diversity has affected the writers of color that you represent and how, if at all, it's changed over time. My clients have been impacted by the lack of diversity in, in quite a number of different ways. For one, they're always being compared to the one successful writer with whom they share a cultural or ethnic background. Being asked to write a book, sort of, quote unquote, in the vein of Tanahasi Coates or like Roxane Gay or Angie Thomas, you know, the YA author of The Hate You Give, the industry seems to have a tendency to glom onto and elevate the very few successful voices by people of color and think of them as representative of their entire community, as if there was only one African-American or one Latino community and not really acknowledge the broad range of voices that deserve to be heard. So um, being shoved into a narrow pigeonhole is, is one issue. And then there's this issue of relatability that you mentioned. Um, I was looking over some responses to a recent submission of this utterly amazing novel by an Asian author whom I don't want to name in this podcast because her book is still on submission. Um, and the book is set in the country of her birth. And she is, in my opinion, one of the most promising and talented writers out there right now, like sort of big prize winning kind of talent. Um, so here are some of the comments that we got. Um, I couldn't connect with the voice. Well, the voice is very much in the dialect of the country where she's from. It's not really hard to understand or to follow, but it's just very distinctive to that part of the world. Um, another comment was, I found it difficult to know the characters and to slip into the story. Um, another, the narrator's voice made me feel distant from the characters, and I found myself reading it in a more of an intellectual mode than an emotional one. Another... I didn't find the emotional traction. Another, I didn't connect with the characters on a deeper emotional level. So to me, it felt like the writers have this responsibility to create characters that white editors can connect with emotionally. You know, speaking just for my, myself, I tend to connect emotionally with characters who in some way mirror my own experiences or things that I've had to struggle with. In my case, for example, being an other, you know, an outsider, 
an immigrant, a woman of color. So as much as we talk in the industry about universal themes, we all yearn to have our own lives reflected in the books that we read. And so it makes sense that white editors, who also mostly stem from a rather narrow, privileged background, would be more drawn to characters in whom they can see themselves. And I feel that that's really a big problem. You know, I had an experience. My very first novel had uh, characters who were both black and white. And it was about segregation in Kansas City, which, you know, it was, the book is set in 1996. It came out in 2001. Uh, people are aware now of northern cities and their deep roots of, you know, sort of systemic racial uh, uh, segregation uh, because of Ferguson. But at the time, that wasn't something that people talked about very much. And when I turned that book in, uh, my, my editor was white. He was a terrific editor. Um, he was from the South. But I, it was very clear to me that I'm not at this house anymore. I'm, I'm at, actually at Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. But it was very clear to me that the, the editorial board of the house, and, and, and according to my editor, just didn't know what to do with that book, right? And I felt like if there had been more editors of color in the room, they would have mm-hmm. known what to do with it. And I, I also saw this happen with a, another writer of my, who was published by my same editor a few years later named Calvin Baker, who wrote a great book. He was black and wrote a great book called Once Two Heroes, which I wrote a review of for the Kansas City Star. But again, I felt like it was a very direct uh, – uh, it's a wonderful novel. It's, it's, in, it's just about the story of two soldiers, one black, one white, who come back to America after Second World War – and it's their experiences, even though they fought side by side in the war. And again, I felt like it really affected the way that that book was publicized and presented to reviewers that there wasn't an advocate or two or three or five within the publishing house who were non-white who could say, this is a great book. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, go ahead, Sui. Yeah, I I just, I don't know, thinking about the the quotes that the those parts of the article about Chris Jackson, I just think about, I mean, the editor is a resource also, right? Like a gatekeeper and also a resource who, when they do share certain things with you, can talk to you in a certain way. And it was, it's funny, until putting together this episode, I had never really thought about it this way. I'm, my my editor, the editor of my first novel, who is no longer at the imprint that I'm with, um, was also someone who was a childhood friend of mine and who I had met her on the first day of kindergarten And then she went on to work at Random House and acquired my book. Um, And I had never thought of it this way, but she had also been listening to me talk about my family, my background since we were five. You know, she she knows a huge number of people in my extended family. We'd been reading books together and talking about them. And so in a way, I mean, she really she already was in that conversation with me and had was 25 years ahead of anyone else who could have been having it from her background. She's white. And um, she was a wonderful editor. I do think like that distinctive history and experience really changed, um, really changed that relationship. And Aisha, I'd love to go back to what you were saying before about writers feeling pressured to write in the same way as say the most prominent writers from their backgrounds, you know, um, say black writers being told to write something in the vein of Ta-Nehisi Coates or Roxane Gay, both of whom are obviously incredible writers, but um, there's great variety within these communities. And the ways that writers of color sometimes feel pressured to perform came up when some writers were responding to our posts about this show. People were talking about feeling pressure to perform their identities by, say, writing protagonists who match their own demographics. One South Asian writer spoke of a magazine passing on a story because she hadn't put it in the South Asian character's point of view, for example. And I was curious about whether you'd seen this happen, especially after our conversation with Danielle. I'm interested in this question of who gets to write across racial lines. And I think uh, I wrote a piece a while back about how people were responding to Bill Chang's Southern Cross the Dog, for example. And I just think that this room is not something that's necessarily given to writers of color. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I've definitely had clients who were pressured to write characters who match their cultural identities 
or to include themes that match the white editor's idea of their particular culture. So, for example, one author who was writing a novel partially set in India was asked to include an arranged marriage theme and like a dowry and bride burning theme um, because, you know, that's what the idea of India is. Um, and then I've also had clients experience the opposite, what I would call sort of whitewashing maybe, um, when a title was deemed too exotic, for example, because it included a name, um, a sort of quote-unquote exotic name from that author's part of the world. And so when the book didn't sell that well in hardcover, they took that name out. They changed the title, which is, you know, really something that I'd never heard of before and took that name out. Um, and another book that didn't sell well in, in hardcover, they changed the cover, um, which had a woman in a sari um, in the paperback so that the characters were not recognizably brown or, you know, from that part of the world. Um, as for whether writers of color get to write across racial lines, I can I can say it's almost certainly a non-starter that if their main characters do not reflect their identity, it would be almost impossible to sell a project like that. So um, Danielle, Jose Older, and Britt Bennett, probably among many others, have spoken about white gatekeepers at every level of the industry. And we've been talking mostly about editors. Um, and in 2014, NPR quoted um, Older as saying, we need diverse agents, we need editors, we need diverse book buyers, we need diverse illustrators, and we need diverse executives and CEOs at the top, too. So we're talking about editors, but I'm wondering what you think about this comment. Are there other parts of the industry, say marketing, publicity, or something else that we're, we're not mentioning that we should be incorporating into this conversation that we haven't? Well, first of all, I agree with Britt and Daniel wholeheartedly. I profoundly believe we need wholesale changes in hiring practices across the board um, that are because they're currently largely reliant on word of mouth and networking. Um, we need to raise salaries for entry-level jobs so that people can actually live off them. Um, and we need to address the bias that exists in publishing right now, which gives candidates who were able to attend very pricey elite institutions much greater consideration than those who attended a state, a state school. You know, we need to institutionalize some sort of mentorship system so that everyone starting out can benefit from the experience and connections of senior executives. As much as I'm in awe of Chris Jackson or like other veterans of color, in this, uh, editors of color like Dawn Davis and Tracy Sherrod, they are all heads of their own imprints. Um, so they don't really have influence over policy and practices within the corporation. So we need people of color who are senior executives within the larger corporate structure. And yes, that problem definitely extends beyond editorial to not only the other departments like marketing, sales and publicity who influence how the book is packaged and promoted, but also to buyers at the chains and, and independent bookstores who decide which books they're going to carry given their limited shelf space. Uh, so what kind of advice do you give to writers of color who are working in this environment? You know, what 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 advice do you wish you hadn't had to give? Well, I tell authors to work hard to connect with other writers and with anyone in the industry who will support their work and to nurture those connections, because this is a connection driven industry and that's how you get a job and that's how you get your book noticed and that's how you get your book paid attention to. Um, I tell them to be prepared to handle a lot of their own promotion, especially, especially to audiences of color, because mostly publishers still don't have really effective strategies in place for reaching them. And what I wish I didn't have to tell them is that they're going to have to decide which battles to fight and which ones to let go of, at least until they're successful and have more leverage and that they have to be okay with being the explainer, the interpreter all the time, because the likelihood is that they're not going to have a Chris Jackson who knows and gets the struggle, whatever that might be. Yeah, Sugi, what was your experience um, selling Love Marriage? Like, how, how, did you, how did it work with your um, publicity person? 
Well, I think um, referring back to that relationship with my editor, Rebecca Shapiro, which I think was just so unusual, I think that saved me from a lot of, in a way that I did not at the time recognize, really, um, because she already knew so many things that I would have had to explain to someone else. Um, I think I I didn't have to do that. I think that... um, I think my book was sold in a different economic environment, which is something that also um, has. So I think the conversation around diversity and writers of color has changed substantially since my book was published. Um, I think I was. Well, I think that um, there's a lot more open discussion of it, and it's a lot easier, I think, for writers to address it in a very clear fashion, whereas before I think. Um, I mean, it wouldn't be hard to right? like, I don't know that on my entire book tour, for example, I could be wrong about this, but I don't think I visited a single bookstore where the owner of the bookstore was a person of color. Um, I so appreciate the support of the bookstore owners who had me out to their stores. I did also notice that, um, you know, in at at bookstores, at literary festivals, in reviews, um, in other places, writers of color are also often grouped together. And while I've come uh, in the intervening decade to have a real appreciation for the way that writers can also broaden each other's audiences, um, I do wonder sometimes if people are seeing, if people will sometimes say, like, I mean, I, I know very few South Asian writers who haven't been told at some point, right, that we're all like Arundhati Roy or we're all like, you know, you're like the next, you're the next Jambula Hiri or the next Arundhati Roy. Um, and of course, I would be, I mean, I would be, I'm a huge admirer of both of those writers, um, but I don't think that. I'm stylistically particularly like Jambula Hiri. I think it would mean, require. Maybe you should start writing about Italy now then. um i was yeah i after my six wonderful days in italy this fall i very well might do that um but yeah i mean i think that um it's also true that a lot of people have faith that readers will show up for white writers and i think that one leap that we have to take here is to think that readers will show up for writers of color too and uh, my friend mira jacob wrote this terrific piece and part about this based on um, an incident that happened to her where she was she was giving a speech at a publishing event about she was talking about race and, she, and no one was listening to her. We'll put that piece on our on our Facebook page as well. Readers can't show up if the books aren't published. Um, readers can't show up if the books aren't reviewed, if they don't know about them. Readers can't show up if booksellers don't put those books in the stores. And, and I wanted I mean, there are wonderful people out there who are supporting books in these ways. Um and expanding the ways, expanding the expectations for the ways that readers might react, I think would be really valuable. I completely agree. And, you know, it's not like when uh, a book by a white writer fails, you know, that editors are saying, oh, my gosh, we can't possibly acquire another book by a white writer because the last one didn't do well. But that's definitely something that I hear all the time. Oh, no, we can't acquire this book by your Bangladeshi author because we had a, a book by a Bangladeshi author last year that just didn't do well. And so we think that Bangladeshi books just don't do well. <laughs> does it help though does it help that there have been at least uh, it seems like to me at least I can think of a couple really successful books uh, from 2016 like um, Yeah Jesse's Homegoing and Britt Bennett's um, The Mothers uh, that seem to have sold very well and been successful I mean, does that help change the landscape or no that's just a passing thing I don't know if it's a passing thing. I I feel like there we've been here before. You know, we 20 years ago. You know, there were all these imprints that sprung up, um, African American imprints and even sort of Latino imprints, because people realized that there were in fact audiences for books by people of color, and that people of color read books and buy books. Um, but then slowly, slowly, those imprints kind of faded away, and the interest in those, because ultimately, it's a trend driven industry, and they're always moving on to the next trend. So I want to see some sort of you know, more fundamental changes happening to to reassure us that it's not just another trend, this whole diversity movement. We had a writer um, message me to ask if we could talk about those who have multiply marginalized identities, which seems to me like such an important question. And the response is those people meet because 
you know, of course, there are writers who are black and queer, black and disabled, black and queer and disabled. Um, you know, those just being examples. I mean, do publishers do publishers understand that there are audiences for this material? Because I can also think of instances, not even sort of intersectionality examples, but, you know, moments when reactions to my work have been sort of like, I mean, I remember sitting in a workshop and, and having someone who was my friend sort of be like, could this many characters really die in this situation? And I was <laughs> like, oh no, they for they did. Um, that's that's actually a pretty accurate representation of how the situation happens. So just sort of write the idea that our lives and our histories are plausible and that there are audiences for them. Yeah, and I think that you know the publishing industry is actually quite sort of a conservative industry and um, so for the most part um, I think that they will see a work that has characters of color who also have some sort of other marginalized identity as a subset of a subset and you know the, the common received wisdom is that white writers don't buy those books, white readers, I'm sorry, don't buy those books, and that there are just simply not enough readers of color to make books like that worth publishing. I mean, there are exceptions, of course, especially in the YA world, which tends to be more progressive. And I, I don't really mean to you know, blow a lot of doom and gloom here because I do see some changes happening, particularly some bright lights are this uh, POC and pub uh, movement, you know, that is really, being very articulate in their demands and, you know, the way that their activism has brought more young people into this space, you know, has been has been very encouraging and heartening to see. Yeah. And as you mentioned that, I was just thinking, too, I mean, in England, there's I mean, obviously a different conversation about race and class going on. There is a very powerful movement um, which has prompted in recent years, like a lot of good conversations, some, some books, I believe, um, as of maybe just very recently, a new literary agency. Um, and that movement is the, I guess the acronym is BAME, which is different than what we've been using here. And, but that, that conversation has been really helpful for me to watch and, and look at and see how writers there are strategizing about ways to change, change what's going on. Yeah, I read that thing about the literary agency, which got some kind of major grant from the government. You know, I would like to get a grant from the government like that. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm doing that work. I've been doing that work for 20 years. Yeah, it is. Well, ama- I mean, I, we, it's amazing how Europe does spend a lot more money on the arts than America does. That's just the way, you know, it's like when you see how they do it, uh, it's, it's kind of amazing. It makes me certainly jealous. Me too. Well, um, hopefully we do, as, as you say, have some bright lights to look towards as we consider how this conversation might move forward. Um, we'll be continuing the conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter. Um, Aisha, thanks so much for being with us today. It's really helpful to hear more about this from your point of view. And with that, really, with 25 years of experience of thinking about it as an editor and an agent, it's just really a privilege to have you with us. So I, I feel like I, I was a, a kind of pessimistic in in my responses but you know it is genuinely how I feel you know especially having this long view from um, starting 25 years ago and you know really seeing how little has changed you know it's very disheartening but then you think about like when have people ever given up power easily giving prizes I think that uh that's a wonderful thing. And obviously my clients have benefited from that, but that's relatively easy to do. You know, you just throw together a jury of color and they give it to authors of color, but, you know, bringing about institutional change, you know, something like what's happening in Hollywood right now, where, you know, people are, if not exactly stepping aside, but at least sharing, you know, responsibility with women. Well, we need to have something like that going on here too, but it's not going to happen anytime soon. Aisha, as Sugi said, it's a real honor to have you on the show. And I know our listeners are going to really appreciate uh, listening to your experienced take on the industry. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. And now it's time for our In the Stack segment with JJ Cantrell. This is Jen Cantrell with this week's section in the stacks. This is Abby Fenewald with Book People in Austin, Texas. Book People is Texas's largest independent bookstore since 1970 and has been voted number one bookstore for the last 15 years. Hi, Abby. Hi. 
So what recommendations do you have for us this week? Here, first up, I have a book called Marriage of a Thousand Lies by S.J. Sindhu. And she's a Sri Lankan-American writer. And this book came out actually this summer, but I feel like it just really could have gotten a little more more buzz. So the story is of a woman named Lakshmi and her husband Krishna, and they're both Sri Lankan living in the U.S. And they are married uh, through an arranged marriage, and they're both secretly gay. It's a story that's all about their internal struggles, their struggles with their families, and how to deal with you know their culture while still being true to who they are. And it's a book that several of our booksellers felt was just one of the best ones of last year. So it's the first one. I don't feel like I could really be a very good Texas bookseller if I didn't recommend something that was at least set in Texas. So the next one is Bluebird Bluebird by Attica Locke. I think a lot of people know Attica Locke for her work on Empire and Bluebird Bluebird, if you haven't already yet, is just fabulous. So it's set in East Texas and it's the story of a black Texas ranger and he gets sort of caught up in solving this crime but you also learn a lot about his sort of backstory and personal history. So it's very clearly South and um, in Texas, and he is going through, you know, Highway 59 and driving around, and you see a lot of the sort of rural Texas elements here. But it talks a lot about race and justice, and I think there's a lot that people everywhere can sort of gain from reading it. So that's um, a fabulous one. And then last is a book that's coming out a little later this month. It's called Everything Here is Beautiful, and it's by Mira T. Wonderful story of these two sisters who have come to the U.S. and they brought them over dies and so the two of them sort of have to take care of each other. One of them begins going through some sort of mental health problems and is hearing voices and the other sister has to help her and so while you're getting all their sort of normal everyday parts of their lives um, they are both of course you know growing up and falling in love and getting married and you know the one who sort of has all these mental health problems is in and out of hospitals and all this kind of thing it's very much the story of two sisters and their sort of bond to each other and, and how they deal with that and it's just a really fascinating sort of heartbreaking story so those are those are the three recommendations All right, given today's topic and of course our ever-churning news cycle, I want to end today's episode with a brief note about the passing of a writer who mattered a lot to me. A. Sivanandan, the author of the beautiful political novel When Memory Dies, which is set in Sri Lanka. Sivanandan left his native Sri Lanka after anti-Tamil riots in 1958 and went on to become the founding editor of the influential journal Race and Class and the director emeritus of the Institute of Race Relations in London. He wrote hugely influential work about Black and working class politics in Britain. We'll be posting a little bit more about Savannah on our Facebook page. So if you're interested, you can head there for more information. And I hope that you'll check out the novel. And that's it for today's episode of Fiction Nonfiction. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us in iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or through the Literary Hub website. Thanks so much to the wonderful listeners who've been posting reviews on iTunes and following us on Facebook where we're at FNF Pod, or on Twitter, where we're at FNF Talk. Keep reading, these stable geniuses.